Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. going on guys welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and my good friend danny of deljabar what's up man how are you i'm doing great man happy chinese new year yes happy chinese new year it's really funny because i had zero clue as chinese new year until just about 10 seconds before ago. we decided a, <laughs> a minute ago yeah i had zero clue it's a total yeah. coincidence that we're doing this episode on chinese new year Um, or at least releasing it on Chinese New Year. Mm -hmm. We are recording this podcast on Thursday, the, I think the 11th or 12th or today is the 11th. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thursday, the 11th in 2021. So we are in the year of the ox, right? Uh, we, yeah, well, I guess it depends on where in the world, uh, we are. I think it's, I think it's tomorrow, like 12 AM. It's the year of the ox. But right now we're still, as we're recording, we're still in the year of the rat. Although I'm not, <clears throat> I'm not big into the lunar calendar, so I don't know if they use like a 12 a.m. cutoff or not. Well, whatever it is, 2000. It's the year of the ox somewhere. <laughs> it's supposed to be the year of the ox, and we're leaving the year of the rat. Right. Um, which makes sense that the year of the rat was the year of COVID because rats spread disease. Right. They should have renamed it to uh, year of the bat, though. Oh. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) is a bat even a zodiac sign or a zodiac symbol no no not not a chinese one at least so i have a a buddy and uh i'll just say i know somebody who there they had their baby early Mm -hmm. they had an induced pregnancy to why because it wasn't an auspicious date to avoid having their child be born in the year of the rat. That's hilarious. So they, so the child was induced and came out in I think January or December before the Chinese New Year. So they are they the are they the um, Chinese or, or Asian generally? Um, they're Vietnamese. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that there's like a lot of, like of those cultures. Uh, you know, they have um, a lot of traditions around numerology and uh i know that uh, specifically the chinese like they they look for auspicious symbols you know uh in dates so like there's you know specific dates that you should get married you know specific dates that you should you know have babies <laughs> uh different years and like different meanings it's it's all very you know horoscopy in my opinion but you know it's definitely a part of the collective um asian culture for sure it's a, it's a big part yeah yeah, but inducing the child, so what? I guess you know, I guess it different makes sense. different strokes for different folks. You know, um, as long then, as the baby is healthy and the and the mother is healthy, I have no problem with that. That's their choice. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, whatever floats your boat. Now, do you want to get started right into the episode, or do you want to? Well, I do have one update, uh, one one thing, and I, and I promise them we'll jump right back into the the actual show here. But uh, as you know, I am a hashtag free Britney uh, kind of guy, and uh, the the show uh, that I told everybody about last weekend came out on Hulu uh, last weekend. It was called Framing Britney Spears. And I watched it, and it was awesome. And it was a piece that the New York Times did. It was, it was very, very good. So I recommend it for anyone who might be interested in this particular story. And the short version of the story is that, you know, basically she's been under what's called a conservatorship uh, by her father. They say that she has dementia and she can't control herself. Uh, but it's total bullshit because she's able to put out albums and do tours and have residencies and in Las Vegas, and she's totally cohesive, and and it's all it's all a lie. Anyway, uh, so about this, I found out uh, today, just uh, about an hour before we started recording, that uh, after this show came out, I guess she's getting some notoriety, and finally the judge bent a little bit. So now we're now now uh, Jamie uh, Jamie Spears, her father, not her sister who carries the same first name, uh, has to be the co-conspirator. No, not co-conspirator. Co, what was the word? Conservator. (laughs) He has to be the co-conservator with a bank called Bessemer Trust. So now he doesn't have exclusive access to all her money. He has to like work with this like third party, uh, which is a really, really good sign um, because yeah, now he can't embezzle the shit out of her. And also what's fucked fucked up about this whole thing is that uh, Britney Spears is paying for everyone's legal fees, right? She's paying for her own to get her freedom, and then she's also paying for her dad's to fight against it. And it's really fucked up situation. So, some good news coming out of the Free Britney saga. Well, that's what happens with uh, these child stars. They're mm-hmm. especially if they have greedy parents. Yep their their life later turns into a humongous train wreck fighting over money. Yeah, um, it's unfortunate. But yeah, I guess it's good that things are turning positive for her. Um, now let's jump into the topic because yeah. after our our last episode, over, over the past few weeks, we've we've been concentrating on uh, China. Specifically, we we jumped into the Uyghurs last episode, and what ended up happening is that Danny fell into a really big rabbit hole. Oh yeah! And why don't you tell us about this rabbit hole that you fell in and? what we want to do the podcast on today for sure so initially as you pointed out we, we did this you know kind of uh full topic on the uyghurs we had talked about this like uh, like a year and a half ago or so kind of in passing as part of a show but not a full show and then we did all of this research to just talk about the uyghurs because it's gaining a lot of popularity in terms of the media that that we're getting about it you know uh as you know um uh, Mar- uh, Mike Pompeo on the last day of the Trump administration threw the hand grenade out into the room that said, you know, he that the U.S. is labeling China China's treatment of the Uyghurs as a genocide, which is huge news, right? That's huge geopolitical news, right? So we wanted to cover like, all right, well, what's the history of the Uyghurs and like why, what's going on and 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 stuff like that. So we did that episode, and that got me super fascinated in wanting to understand like okay sounds like these minorities don't like these minorities and like what's going on here right what's with this this ethnic divide right the sectarian divide so i wanted to explore that and i wanted to know well what is the ethnic makeup what is the ethnic 
you know, comeuppance of the Chinese nation. Like, what is this? Because something that I found out from the last episode was that there's like 56 ethnicities uh, in China, right? It's not just one Chinese people, even though the Chinese Communist Party likes to pretend that that's the case. Um, And so I went on this fucking rabbit hole. Uh, Just like initially I wanted to like do like a historical episode, which I still kind of do. And that talked about the warring states of China, right? To try to help us understand the context by which we got to, you know, a massive Chinese, you know, communist party. But then I found out, you know, and I found a particularly good article, um, an essay uh, written by a professor uh, of anthropology that kind of blew my mind. And it was about basically the invention of the Chinese people. And then that was the rabbit hole that I fell down. So I pretty much wanted to kind of explore the concept of a Chinese nation and and how how that refers to the billions of people within that geographic territory of China, uh, which, like I said, includes more than 50 ethnicities. Um, And I think what's important to point out is that um, labeling and using the word Chinese nation in this way is not exactly appropriate. Um, because there is a difference between like a state nation and an ethnicity. They're related, but they're different. We'll talk more about that later. But let, let's actually lay out some definitions before we proceed. Um, yeah. Sounds so good. an ethnic group is a group of people who identify with each other based on a common set of language or history or culture. Mm-hmm. Um people who identify as a group and more importantly that other groups identify as a group as well. Right. Examples of ethnic groups are the Poles, uh, Ukrainians, Germans, etc. There's mm-hmm. many ethnic groups in the world and at some point these groups were something else or were a combination of different ethnic groups at the time. Right. For example, no one really spoke Polish until the Middle Ages. I didn't know These that. People, it wasn't That's an ancient language. It was a language that started appearing around the 10th or 11th century. Hmm. Um, the Poles were Slavs. They were descendants of the West Slavs. And they basically assimilated. I don't, I don't, I don't know the full history of the Polish ethnic, ethnicity, but kind of like a spark notes is that all these clans um, assimilated in this one region and they created Polish people. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the difference between a state and an ethnic group is that a state is a political construct that holds a monopoly of violence over a defined area. A nation state is a political identity whose citizens hold a common language or, or ancestry or history. And nation states, take note, are they're relatively they're a new phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't that many nation states a thousand years ago or two thousand right. years ago. Um, nation states really started appearing like in the seventeenth century, eighteenth century, with France and and England um, and Spain. Um, and I think what's the most important thing to really identify before we we jump into this is that. Ethnicity can sometimes be a political construct rather sure. than something that is um, organic. Yeah, absolutely. And as it relates to China specifically, as a nation or a nation state in and of itself, I think the Chinese nation has been, I don't know, uh, 100 years or so old, you know, 
but it's it's not it's not a, a very it's not a very old thing in and of itself. What we know is China basically emerged through confrontations between China and Western powers over the last hundred years. And um, but as a national like entity of consciousness, I'm quoting here uh, from from the source that we'll be using. Uh, I think that um, it has like a five thousand year formation, right? So depending on how you how you measure it or what you want to call it. It's either 5,000 years old or 100 years old. <laughs> so. And what's important about the modern context is that, you know, over the past 100 years, China was forced to band together when confronted by powerful nation states that could right. divide and conquer it. Mm-hmm. So first the Europeans and then later the Japanese. Mm-hmm. The CCP was a nationalist movement in addition to being a communist movement. In fact, the CCP held more legitimacy as a nationalist movement than a Chinese nationalist party who a lot of people saw as just kind of like puppets of, of Western governments. Um, so it was an interesting way to look at the Chinese Communist Party in you know the 1930s. Like they were, um, they could be seen as a, a Chinese nationalist group, even though like within communism, usually they're anti-dividing um, people by ethnic. You know, it's all about the class struggle, not like the ethnic divide. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think what's what's interesting about China specifically is that you could probably do a whole six week ancient history series on on the dynasties during the warring periods. Oh, you could you could do like a for it would be like a long fucking a PhD on it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Let alone six week ancient history. (laughs) Yeah, I mean it's got it's it's literally one of the longest lasting, you know like peoples if, if we want to if we want to use that term loosely um but for today we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna de- dive into every like little dynasty and every single you know uh warring period uh what we're gonna do is a general overview of the formation of the chinese nation uh and how its multi-ethnic nature basically formed this unified people that we call chinese today uh, and if we have some time, maybe we can also talk about how it plays into the current situation with the Uyghurs as an ethnic minority. Um, but one thread that I think we're going to follow pretty consistently here uh, through the formation of the Chinese nation is that we're going to see a consistent um, a consistent pattern of unifying like multiple distinct ethnic groups, sometimes through assimilation, like, uh, uh, um, you know, through willing assimilation uh, and other times it'll be through domination um, but in pretty much every instance uh, of unification that we see there's going to be these disparate peoples uh, that create something new uh, and by creating something new it it basically means the extinction of something old you know of, a, of an older previous unique ethnic ethnicity so that's that's one of the threads that you're going to hear a lot. Um, but so I want to talk about the the source here because I, I want to give credit to the uh, to the um, to the professor here. Uh, the 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 journal uh, the essay that he writes is called uh, "The Formation and Development of the Chinese Nation with Multi Ethnic Groups." The author is named Xiao Tong Fei. He's a professor uh, in the Department of Sociology at Peking University in Beijing, China. And this essay is kind of old. Um, it was based on a lecture that he gave um, back in 88. So when I was born <laughs> in the year of the dragon, whoop, whoop, um, at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. So 
Um, I think what, one thing to point out is that while it is very old, uh, especially because a lot of things have changed since 88 in China, um, I think a lot of things are true. And he, he really hits the nail on the head when it comes to, you know, the, the formation of, um, uh, of the, the Chinese people. So um, there are also places where I disagree with him uh, and where I think he's toting a, a communist line. Well, what's what's interesting though is that this was written in the 1980s, and um, in the 80s, a lot of um, these ancient sites were being found. Exactly. Yeah. That proved very the exciting. existence. So this was like hot off, like a really um, a lot of this writing that Ji Tong Fei did was in response to a lot of these archaeological digs where they found proof of dynasties that they thought were just myth. Right, the Shah dynasty specifically. The Shah, this, yeah, the Shah dynasty mm-hmm. specifically. Everyone thought it was a myth. Right. Future dynasties would say it was a myth because they lost their legitimacy <laughs> yeah. due to their corruption and things like that. But yeah. they found out that no, these guys are actually a society that they had. It's there's, a thing. There's right. dig sites. They were they were things. Mm-hmm. So they maybe they were kind of a real people, and that extends the the history and that the civilized history in that region. You know, to the third millennia, right? Um, BC, <laughs> BC, right? So, f- f- like, long fucking time ago, you know. And I think that that formation of that multi-ethnic structure, like, like we were saying, it's three thousand years, uh, three thousand years ago. Uh, and you know, I think basically that the region that we want to look at here, like, if you were to pick, like, a this is where it started, would be in this plateau, uh, what's called the middle region um, of the Yellow and Yangtze rivers. So. Just like ancient Sumer and ancient Egypt, these were civilizations that were formed near the Euphrates and the Tigris and the Nile River. Mm-hmm. Um, these nations, the Chinese civilization, same thing. They developed near a river. Right. And I think that's true for pretty much every um, ancient you know, uh, thing. The presence of water is important um, for a civilization. So um, I, I think that, that one thing I want to point out is that the like p- Chinese people didn't just pop up out of nowhere, right? It, it actually it took like a super long time for them to become what we know today as Chinese people. It was like what what um, <clears throat> Professor Face calls like a snowball effect, um, which basically took you know three thousand years uh, to to move. And I think it's also important to look at the geography of the quote Chinese homeland um, to kind of understand how that nation formed. Um, so the, the, the boundaries of what we would consider China today, uh, and I'm using air quotes here, I know you can't see it, but China, um, it's, it's basically marked by these geographic boundaries, right? So uh, on, the, on the west side, we have uh, a plateau, the Pamir Plateau, and, and a mountain range in that area as well. In the east, we have, you know, the, the ocean and the islands of the Pacific, uh, in the north, uh, there's a, a desert, the Gobi Desert. Uh, and in the southeast, uh, we have uh, the, the, the China, South China Sea. And in the southwest, we have a mountain range, which separates it from Southeast Asia. You have the Himalaya Mountains. You have the largest mountain ranges in the world. Exactly. Exactly. And so... Uh, I think from the perspective of ancients, what I learned here is that this region was basically the entire habitable region where humans could live. You know, if you were an ancient person living in this area, that was the world for you. 
And they also believed that basically they were surrounded on all four sides by the ocean. They, they called it like within the four seas, which is obviously not true, um, but that's just what they believed. Um, and it's because of those natural boundaries, right, that, that it created this, uh, what do we want to call it? Like a, like a little like little microbiome, even though <laughs> this region is fucking massive, right? This region is like the size of the United States. Um, so really, really, really huge area but it you know because of all these natural structures we we have a very enclosed unit also important to note uh geographically speaking um is that the whole region slopes downwards from west to east so it starts at an altitude of like four thousand meters above sea level in the hengduan mountains and it continues pretty gradually for thousands of miles until you get to like the plains and the foothills uh in the east that aren't very far above sea level at all and what this does like ecologically, uh, is it creates this huge climate diversity. Uh, so you'll see, you know, areas that are, you know, rainforests, you'll see mountainous regions, you'll see, as I pointed out, deserts, you'll see plains, all kinds of different things happen because of this change in altitude and in gradation. And so, uh, what you also see is, is in places with fertile land and temperate climates, you get societies that form around things like agriculture, right? If you can grow crop and you know the, the temperature is okay and the soil is good, that's what people did there. But you also have these areas where it's grassland and steppes. And in those areas, you'll get a lot of animal husbandry. So people raising cattle, people raising sheep, people raising horses, uh, because that's what was good to do there. And... You know, basically, if you lived in the mountains, it meant something totally different than if you lived in the desert. Uh, and that is absolutely reflected in the types of ethnicities and the cultures that they had that sprung up in those respective regions. And if you listen to our episodes we've did on Egypt as well as uh, ancient Sumer, Sumer in Mesopotamia, this region that we're talking about right now is way bigger than a fertile crescent or way bigger than the Nile River Valley. It's also one big, it's contained by natural boundaries as opposed to Mesopotamia, for example, that really didn't have any natural boundaries at all. That's why a lot of the civilizations that came out there were warrior type cultures because they had to defend themselves. So, um, this is important because although there were times of conflict with outside entities throughout the history of China, uh, the history of, of conflict in this region is primarily a history of infighting of the different ethnic groups that developed there. Right, right, exactly. And I've got a good quote that kind of helps, um, you know, uh, bring that to the fore. Um, so Professor Fay says, all nations have a set of claims about their origins and these claims are used to support the feelings of national identity. As a result, there can be differences between these claims and the historical facts. And I think this is um, kind of a good point for us to talk a little bit about, like, how do we know the things that we know about a potentially 5,000-year-old civilization, right? Uh, and, well, you got to <laughs> yeah. – it's a lot like Plutarch right. and a lot of the ancient Greek and Roman historians. They – were historians i think that they probably took the um 
more of the scientific approach at that time to studying history. But again, you know, they were highly biased sources. A lot of the stories that were passed down um, in Greek society were oral stories. Mm -hmm. So a lot Written of them hundreds of years later mm -hmm. meant to be performed in front of people. Right. So you never really know what was true or what was not true. Right. Right. But uh, to, to Henry's point early on, um, when we were talking about the archaeological digs and the excavations and, and the findings that we were learning in the 80s, um, there is some archaeological evidence to back up some of these texts. So what we can, I think we can say that, that, that the, the texts that we focus on, and these are primarily texts written down by Confucius, um, are mostly true or mostly reliable. At least it's a good starting point. Um, on specifically those fossils, you know, what we start seeing are these early fossil records of, of early human ancestor species, so things like Homo erectus. Um, so this is like the precursors to Homo sapiens, which is what we are now. Um, and they find this all over the place in China. And this suggests that um, the cultures that emerged in China emerged there organically uh, rather than through um, migration. Um, obviously all, uh, uh, human species, uh, they were a product of migration from Africa. That is pretty well documented. But what I'm suggesting is that we're talking about these really early proto human beings were already in China at the stage of Homo erectus, as opposed to places like Japan, as an example, that don't have Homo erectus there, right? They, they, migrated from China through a land bridge that used to exist between the Korean Peninsula and Japan, right? So they were there a long fucking time. Uh, they, they have these fossils that were found of the Yuanmo people, uh, and that was dated to about 1.7 million years ago, and they found those in Yunnan, um, in the county of Yunnan. And there's also plenty of fossils that were found that date 100,000 or more years ago all over the place, all over China, in all of the different regions, uh, another quote that Professor Fay had had wrote that that I totally agree with is is that it's it's difficult to imagine that in that primitive age, people so dispersed in all directions shared the same origin, and it is certain that these long separated populations had to develop their own unique cultures to accommodate such diverse natural environments. So by now, I'm hoping that you're getting the sense that. Um, that, that there's basically a, a, a natural geographic region where 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 Chinese cultures were born, uh, that there is fossil records that suggest that they've been there for a minute, um, and that the fossils are pretty much everywhere, so it's not like just one here and there, and that the entire region has very distinct ecologies which promoted different types of cultures, right? Old as dirt people... Lots of different regions, lots of different unique cultures sprung out of this big fucking area. Make sense? That makes sense to me. Definitely. I've got two two uh, quotes here, and they're kind of long, so um, if they get a little too long, I'll, I'll edit them edit them down a bit. But uh, here's the one. Uh, according to the archaeological findings, uh, the similar ecological conditions of the central plains between the mid and lower reaches of the two rivers during the Neolithic era described above, explained the dawn of the Chinese civilization in the 3,000 years between 5,000 and 2,000 BCE, when the ancestors of the Chinese nation were still scattered in various regions. 
In these separate regions, they establish their own unique cultures, and from this, we can see the starting point of the structure of the unified multi-ethnic nation. In the midst of multiple structuring emerged a system of competition in which more advanced cultures were absorbed by less advanced cultures, while maintaining their own characteristics through contact. For example, uh, eventually the Yangshao culture in the Mid-Yellow River region began to infiltrate the Upper Yellow River region in the West. However, when the Yangshao culture came into contact with the superior Shandong, Longshan culture, the Lower Yellow River, there emerged uh, its successor, the Henan Longshan culture. Archaeologists add the regional names in front of the Longshan culture to indicate that they still emerged from the native cultures and describe the real process of intercultural exchange among different groups. As a result, a single cultural structure came out of a multiplicity. Okay, that was a, a bit of a mouthful. Let, let me unpack that for a second. Basically, what he's writing is that we have all of these various different unique cultures, and eventually they start growing uh, and, and, and having contact with one another. In the one example he points out, we have this Yangshao culture, and they, and they end up bumping into this other culture called the Shandong culture, which apparently was superior to them. And rather than the, the first culture um, just assimilating into the second culture, the two cultures fuse together to make something completely different. Does that, does that um, track well for you, Henry? Are you following that? So it sounds a lot like how the Danish, the Danes and the French, or the Franks, they weren't the French at this time, right. they combined to create the Normans in northern France. Right. So the Viking raiders from, from Denmark and the native Franks, they made this Norman culture that went ahead and then conquered. Right. And you could England. Yeah, you could probably make a a case that maybe the Franks were culturally superior. I, I, this is where I get a little bit weirded out by the way that um, Professor Fay writes because he, he talks about superiority a lot. Um, you, you could like say that like the Franks were superior to the fucking Vikings then, or vice versa. But when they came together, they created something different, right? It wasn't like I'm just going to grab all these, you know, all of your people, and you're now me. It just became something new. I think what he's referring to as a more advanced culture is just more advanced culture. They probably just had more technological advance. Uh, um, th they had better technology and they had maybe um, uh, a more developed language system. I mean, I mean, who knows who could really know that? But um, I don't think he means it as in like a DNA sense, like a genetic <laughs> yeah. superiority. Yeah, def definitely thing. not in that respect. I, I just um, get a little weirded out when he says things like that. It it triggers me a little bit. Maybe that's just a little bit in me. But I guess I guess the point what he was making is that uh, just because a civilization is more advanced doesn't mean that you uh, can't degrade and assimilate into a culture that's less advanced. Right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... 
Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Or that you if would maintain your culture right. after you yeah. know bumping into a lesser culture, you know. Um, um, yeah. But this kind of reminds me of well, it doesn't really remind me. I want to ask how this compares to how civilizations rose in Mesopotamia, mm -hmm. because the most common theory is the challenge response theory. Mm -hmm. The challenge response theory is. People were forced to band together to build uh, levees and irrigation systems because of all the frequent and unpredictable flooding that went on. Right. Um, because of the Euphrates River would flood all the time mm -hmm. and it would flood unpredictably. Like it would just flood whatever. So people had to f kind of use their brains and work together in order to um, build these irrigation systems to, to stop. You know, their crops all being destroyed. And mm -hmm. eventually this led to the um, introduction of like cities and then eventual and then eventually political systems and then armies. And, and you know, that's how Western civilization really began. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there's a, a huge comparisons um, and some contrasts. I think the first place that I'll start is that uh, in this article and just generally in the in the Chinese like uh, uh, diaspora, if you will, there's a this attempt to make this massive region that we consider the entire massive region as one thing, right? Um, and I think that that is true in a certain sense, but uh, is is it doesn't allow for a lot of nuance. So what I would say is that if you look at individual um, cultures that sprang up, along the yellow and yangtze rivers there's absolutely a challenge response theory going on there for how those civilizations civilizations sprung up both of those rivers both of those river systems are very highly prone to flooding and also that whole region is very fertile uh, which is why they have agriculture so they absolutely had to develop technology uh to you know create levees and, and irrigation systems as he pointed out so so that created communities in and of itself it also uh, is important to note that unlike in Mesopotamia, where it was basically a marchland, right, where people would go through because there was no natural boundaries, there is a natural boundary in all of China, but within China, it's pretty open, right? And so it was less about, hey, you know, the Egyptians are encroaching on the Fertile Crescent. It was more about, hey, the you know West Yellow River guys are encroaching on the East Yellow River guys. Right. And so they also had this like system of uh, competition between one another. And they would often fight with one another, like um, militarily. Uh, and like, like I pointed out before, when, when they started bumping into each other, it wasn't always the case that the more advanced or the militarily superior culture maintained its culture. Usually they got together and they made a new thing. That's what that's usually what happened. What's interesting, though, is that um, in Chinese mythology, 
a lot of like their ancient leaders and a lot of their ancient idols were people who were um, I forget the name of him. It's like you or something. I forget. You is name. one of them. Yes. You oh, okay? Yeah. You is mm-hmm. one of them. Um, he was he was able to um, placate the floods, or he's able yep. to figure out how to deal with the floods, and that's why how he became yep. a legendary hero. Like in between, like the the in, in like the late third century BC, so like. 2100 2200 there was massive flooding going on mm-hmm. in china just massive flooding and these leaders emerged because they were able to they had the wit to uh invent stuff to uh stop floods from happening yeah and and i don't know how this relates um but i know that when we were talking about uh, mesopotamia a lot of these guys uh, or, or rather not mesopotamia but uh in the nile river right the they would set up a religion around the the river itself right and the fact that um you know they were able to predictably show oh it's going to flood it's going to not flood it's going to flood it's going to not flood that gave the the monarchy that the pharaohs power right that gave them their legitimacy and when it didn't work out that's when they got you know torn up what i don't know about these ancient um uh, uh chinese dynasties is whether or not they developed a um almost like a like a like a theological monarchy or not. I don't know if they were worshiping a god or gods uh, in general. And I don't know if if they're, you know, um, if they were you know, utilizing that as a, as a leveraging point against their people or, or you know, to leverage their power uh, upon the people. What I do know is that they had this thing called the mandate of heaven, right? Uh, to help them legitimize their, their control. Uh, and whenever you've lost the mandate of heaven, was when we would see these dynasties change hands. And maybe it might make sense to just do a really brief overview of some of these dynasties, um, because I think they're important um, to talk about this multi-ethnic nation. I'm not going to go into a deep dive, because honestly, we can do whole entire week's worth of episodes on just any one of these dynasties. Um, but the, the general idea is this. Let, let me take a stab at yeah, these dynasties. Go, go for you, it. Yeah, you yeah. correct me. So there's... I think there's the G, the Shah, the Shah. The, oh, the Shah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can't. It's I pronou- pronounce. Yeah, it's, they're hard, man. <laughs> I, the thing about pronouncing words is that people make fun of me for mispronouncing a lot of stuff. I don't have the opportunity to talk about a lot of these words <laughs> outside with of people, this, <laughs> like outside yeah. of reading about it. And then finally, when I like finally talk about something, I'm mispronouncing it as I'm reading it, like mm-hmm. I'm reading it incorrectly. Uh, so, but there's the Shah, mm-hmm. the Shah, the sh- the Shang. And then there's Zhao, right? right? Those are the three first ones. And then yeah. the Zhai is like the ancient one where they found, they recently found evidence right. in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Kind of like this paper was in response of finding the evidence of a of the Zha uh, civilization. Yeah, totally. The yeah. Shangs were the people that took over afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Zhao kind of was a, weird situation because it would it would break up and then it would decentralize and then it would have like a feudal system and then it would regain centralized power right and the um destruction like the the zhao dynasty was when like the warring state periods happened right exactly like a lot of those civil wars in those areas uh took place Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah totally and and those are all by the way you know rooted and and fundamentally in those yellow and yangtze river um regions uh and then and then there's this spring and autumn period uh which is kind of like a unification and then a warring state period which is another you know division period all of this happens like kind of back and forth a couple of times until 
and I think that one of the bigger turning points in this in dynastic periods of ancient China is when Emperor Qin Shi Huang uh, uh, unified the entire plateau. Uh, and his expansion of that, like, I guess you could probably, you know, uh, liken him to kind of like, uh, um, uh, uh, oh shit, what's the Akkad? Sargon of Akkad? Yeah, Sargon of Akkad, thank you. Uh, you can liken him to kind of like Sargon of Akkad. His expansion of the region uh, and unification was amazing. Uh, he was also a fucking dick. Like, <laughs> I think I would like to actually talk, uh, like, do an entire episode on just the Shin Dynasty because there's so many, like, positive things and also so many negative things about him. Like, like one positive thing, he unified uh, the language. He, you're a dick. He, he was, Emperor he was, Shin, you're a dick. He was, he was brutal. He was fucking brutal. Um, but he also, you know, brought a lot of people together and he made a lot of prosperity. Um, and he laid the groundwork for China. Right? Like, there's a reason why we call it China. It's this guy. Chin, China. Chin, uh. That's where it comes from. So, you know, this guy's this guy's super important. Maybe we'll do another episode on him in the future. Do, do you, know what, you know what they say about making omelets? You got to crack a few chins? You, you have to break, yeah, you have to, you have to crack a few chins. <laughs> yeah. To make an omelet. <laughs> um, a Chinese omelet. <laughs> so... Uh, where, where were we? So it, basically, this is like 2,000 years ago. Uh, and today, you know, China is more than 1.4 billion people. Um, and, and that's according to a, a 2010 census. I think that there's a 91% of the population is what we consider uh, Han Chinese. And we'll use this word a bit more uh, as we go along. And about almost 9% of them were minorities. So I think here it might might make sense for me to talk a little bit about the Han people. So the Han people are this ethnic group uh, that persisted today. Uh, the Han, uh, uh, Han dynasty came after the Qin dynasty, and, and it, um, it, it basically kept furthering the expansion and unification of China. Um, and... Right today, we consider them a unified, like ethnic group. But realistically, you know, they they were a amalgamation, like, like a bunch of different uh, uh, ethnic groups that came together under these em- uh, empires, right? Under these dynasties, and they mostly lived in agricultural areas of China. And it could be said that they inhabited all of the areas that were suitable for agriculture in this area that we know as the Chinese homeland, the one that I was talking about with the natural boundaries. Um, and in this way, you know, what what we started noticing is that the regions where we had to that we today see the majority of our ethnic minorities, what we can, you know, people like Uyghurs, Tibetans, you know, things like that, Hui's, uh, the areas that those people live in were in the areas that were less suitable for agriculture. So we see a consolidation in the agricultural uh, rich areas to Han, and we see a more diverse set of ethnic groups in like mountainous regions. And what happens is the Han would, I'm using his words here, Dr. Uh, uh, Professor Faye's here, they basically infiltrated the ethnic minority areas and base and formed this like network of 
Han Chinese outposts within non-agricultural areas like in Xinjiang, as an example, you know, where the Uyghurs are. And this network of a core of Han in the east with a couple of outcroppings of Han uh, establishments in the west, that became the structure that we today know as the unified multi-ethnic nation of China. And there's a lot of modern um, multi-ethnic states in the world. Look at Indonesia. Indonesia has like 600 different ethnic groups there. Mm -hmm. Um, Malaysia, they have three major groups. They have uh, the Malays, they have Indians, and they they have Chinese people. They have a really Mm -hmm. big Chinese diaspora. And not to mention Malaysia is probably one of the most racist places on earth because I, I guess China, China, Chinese people are seen as an ethnic group outside of China. Mm-hmm. Like they're right. seen as their own Chinese diaspora yep. in Malaysia. It's very, 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 very hard on Chinese people. There, There's a lot of discrimination there. Um, pretty much every country in Africa has dozens of ethnic groups in each state. Um, look at Ethiopia. We recently just did a podcast on the war, um, the, the civil war that that's breaking out in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a product of their ethnic federal system, where you know they had different ethnic groups governing different parts of the country, but mm-hmm. they would compete for the centralized power. And now there is a huge civil war between the Tigray and the north and the rest of the country. Right. Very interesting episode, um, by the way. Um. If you look at European states, or at least Western European states, um, and this is, I guess you can say this is um, opinion, but they form through civic nationalism. And even though that they were formed through civic nationalism, there was still this process of eliminating other culture identities. Because to create a nation state, there needs to be this process of um, indoctrinating everyone, mm-hmm. indoctrinating the population. So making sure that everyone speaks the same language, making sure that people have the same culture icons, making pe- sure that people, you know, they pledge allegiance to the same flag, making sure that people like the same movies. <laughs> you know, I mean, it gets people, acted like smart people who smart live people. in the urban areas, <laughs> like yeah. these smart, like kind of elite, elitist type figures who live in these urban areas where, um, the state structures exist. They formulate plans to spread this, you know, whatever culture they're trying to promulgate to, you know, the countryside, to the farmlands, right? You know, to these different parts of the country. So, right. because a lot of groups, if you go back thousands of years, or not even thousands of years, if you went back five hundred years, there was probably more of a village identity rather than some large, you know, national identity. You know, there was probably some identity over some, you know, um, 50 mile area of, of like 20 miles or so than mm-hmm. this national identity. Right. And then in the process of creating nation states now, look at France, for example, they had to eliminate all the other ethnic groups that were living in France at the time. And then you have, you had a lot of them. You had the Flemish who speaks Flemish nowadays? Very few. Um, you had Bretons. Um, they were destroyed along with all the other ethnic groups. Uh, so, I mean, it's a 
to create a nation state is a messy process and that's what china is doing right now when it's when it's um creating their nation state in in broad daylight per se but they're trying yeah. to keep it secret so it makes yep. it look worse yeah that's what they're doing with with them um re-educating Uyghur Muslims yeah. in the Northwest. Yeah, they're, they're trying to do that. I definitely struggle with this because, you know, it's easy to look back on the past and look at like the 3,000 years ago state where, you know, they were assimilating smaller ancient peoples and basically eradicating those, you know, unique identities to create one Han person. But, you know... Today, that's happening also, right? The Han is this core of the Chinese multi-ethnic nation, but the Han are also a historic, you know, like hodgepodge of a bunch of ancient ethnicities that share a, a guess, cohesive culture today. Even that's a stretch, you know, because even of the people that consider themselves Han, they uh, have very different, you know, uh, uh, cultures, even within itself, like even different languages, right? Uh, one thing that's notable is is the, you know the difference between Ch- uh, uh, Mandarin Chinese and and Cantonese, right? That's a huge difference. Um, but nevertheless, we've got this like group of what used to be a bunch of ethnicities that uh, are forcing these other minorities who are considered other to them, even though them is in and of itself a, a multi ethnic group. Uh, to be like them, <laughs> it's just kind of confusing, you know. And when you see it ha- happening in broad daylight, like you said with the Uyghurs, you know, um, and then when you also consider that this is all like under the under the umbrella of the Chinese Communist Party, where where they're all like, we are one people, but also we are many people, but we are one people, you know. It it just it I struggle with it. It's it's hard to wrap your head around. And I think. Honestly, if I'm being honest, it kind of feels a lot like, you know, the the American nationality. You know, uh, we are a multi-ethnic peoples, but we are like a one thing. I don't know. I'm, I'm getting off track here. <laughs> well, I think that one thing is more, it's, it's more of, I don't think you're going where there's like this Han supremacist movement there that's trying to like assimilate. <laughs> I honestly like, oh, do the think Han there is a, a bit of a Han supremacist movement going on there. They're, they're very, uh, like there's some clear cut racism from, from the uh, re- research that I've been doing for the Uyghur issue. For, for sure. There is a Han supremacist theory. But is it just, is that, um, is the prejudice just limited to the Uyghur population? I guess there's no, other, it's not. It's the just Uyghurs Han and non Han. The Muslims. The yeah. Uyghurs aren't the only Muslims in in China. Right. No, there's the also there's, there's also the Hui, right? Yeah. Um, but 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 it is a Han versus non Han thing, right? And that's where this idea of like Han supremacy comes from, you know. Uh, well, and, Han's what ninety one percent of the population, right? But right? also also we're talking about Han as if Han is one thing. Han is yeah, many well, things. You know, you know, like it's crazy to me. It's a it's a all ethnicities are constructs. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally, they're all fleeting too, mm-hmm. and they all like change. Ethnicity, they they all change and they all assimilate into something else. Mm-hmm. There's there's no like Roman. There's no one speaking Latin anymore. <laughs> yeah, no. no. Even Not by if choice. you take even if you take the like an interesting way to look at the evolution of English is looking at the Lord's Prayer 
Have you ever seen that? Like, yeah, totally. The Lord, yeah, and then the like Lord's how, Prayer, how it has changed. How over, it has changed. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this was all taken from, I think this goes back to the 1400s. Right, which and, grand scheme of things isn't even that far away. Which is, Yeah, which is not that far away. In the 1400s, you couldn't even tell. You could barely tell it was English. Right. That's how much English has changed. Right, right. You could so, barely tell. Like, So imagine what England was like 800 years ago. Imagine I'm what not, China was like 3,000 years ago. You know what I mean? Like, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's it's to, it's totally crazy, uh, and, and maybe it might make sense to talk about like what what's the ethnic the current ethnic makeup of China because we're kind of touching on it a little bit and you know I think there there are these ethnic minority territories, uh, and the if you look at it by land area, ethnic minority territories account for more than half of the country, right? It's mostly ethnic minority territory, and this is we're talking about like mostly plateaus, mountains, grasslands, stuff that wasn't typically suitable for agriculture in the ancient Neolithic period. Uh, but as a result, what we see is ethnic minorities, uh, you know, they, when, when they came up in these regions, they, they did, they did animal husbandry, right? They, they did fucking Were they sheep. married animals? <laughs> no. I'm it's, just joking. It's, <laughs> it just kind of sounds like that a little it bit. Do, it does. It's like you, you raise sheep and you raise cattle and you like ride horses and yeah, I know. Uh, maybe I know some of them mean. have hawks and shit, you know, like. Cool, cool shit. If I was in school, though, if I was, you know, like a seventh grader in school listening to in social <laughs> studies, if someone said animal husbandry, I'd be like, <laughs> animal husbandry? <laughs> Marrying animals? <laughs> I'm husbanding my, my animals. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, th- but that's that's the type of economy that, that you know, th- that they developed. They developed a, a an economy that, that was a, that was centered around animal husbandry. But the Han people who lived in the in the fertile areas that agriculture can happen, they they situated an economy around agriculture. And I think it's obviously clear that the agricultural economy wins out, right? Or at least it won out historically, uh, because you see a very rapid expansion of the Han and not a very rapid expansion of these other minority groups. And this is evidenced by the population. Like, like even though half of the land area is minority territory, even inside of the minority territory, we see a pretty big Han population. Uh, they may even be a majority in certain cases. Uh, so there are eight provinces, actually that ethnic minorities occupy more than 10% of the local population. So that's Inner Mongolia, uh, Guizhou, um, Yunnan, uh, Ningxia, Guangxi, uh, Qinghai, uh, Xinjiang, which is the one with the Uyghurs, and Tibet, which is interesting that they write Tibet in here because uh, this was in the 80s when Tibet was still definitely a part of China, and now it's like questionable whether or not it should be or not. It's like the whole Taiwan question, like, is Taiwan a part of it? He actually goes to, to say that they didn't have statistics on the uh, the population in Taiwan, so he left them out intentionally, but he definitely said that Taiwan is a part of China. So, yeah, this is one of those, like, toting the Chinese communist line uh, parts of the of the essay that I was just like, ah, oh, whatever, rolling my eyes. Can you bit. really blame him, though? No, I can't, because he probably would have gotten in trouble if he didn't say something like that. Because so. this, guy, this guy was not some, like, Chinese propagandist. No, I mean, he's, yeah, he's not Chinese a show. Pro- no. He was a real anthropologist who yeah. would, you know, do a good one too. lectures in Oxford and yeah. come to America. Right. Like, he was re- a renowned 
anthropologist. Yeah, he's, he's a very and, good like, one. Leading it's, expert in Chinese anthropology. It's just funny to see, like, because you could clearly see where it's like, oh, there goes the Chinese, the the Communist Party line again. You know, uh, you you just see where they popped in. Like, it's almost like he wrote them in there in such a way to be like, I have to say this. <laughs> Here it is. You know. Um, it was just interesting to have that. Well, someone up. probably looked at it. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah, like someone like, okay, let's read this. Um, <laughs> we're going to change gonna add, that, that. We're going to add that, this line that, here. This line, that line. Right. Okay. Um, okay, so so back to the ethnic uh, population. So ethnic minority populations, uh, more than half of the total population in only two ethnic minority autonomous regions. Those two are Xinjiang and Tibet. And th- so... So even in these giant regions, which we would consider as an ethnic minority region, there are probably mostly Han people living there because there's just so many fucking Han people, right? Like almost a, a billion Han people by themselves. Uh, and, and so because of this, it makes it very hard for us to find a pure, quote unquote, eth- ethnic minority community uh, because... You know, in a lot of these regions, we see a mixed bag, right? We see communities where minorities live separately from Han. We see communities where they live alongside of them and everything in between, right? But in Tibet and Xinjiang, there is more clear separation of those peoples, uh, which I think is why we have such... I mean, we haven't really talked about Tibet in general, but, you know, the the issues with Tibet are, are very similar in that respect to the issues with Xinjiang. These are very distinct, unique ethnic groups, and they don't want to assimilate with the Han. Like, they want to be their own thing, uh, and that causes some tension. Uh, Xinjiang is, uh, Uyghur, is Uyghur territory, yeah, Xinjiang for those is, of you who haven't listened exactly. to our last episode. Exactly. Um, here's another quote. It's a short one here. Uh, Han peoples uh, have also been absorbed by local ethnic groups. Uh, however, the Han rely primarily on those who deeply penetrate the ethnic minority areas, exerting their ability to form cohesion, consolidating all of the ethnicities into a unity. Which is interesting. Hmm. So what does that mean? Like the unity that the Han exert? Yeah, I mean, I struggle with this one a little bit, but it sounds like that 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 Professor Faye is trying to say like the Han possess some kind of unifying quality, right? Which I think on the face of it sounds really good. Like he's he's trying to make the Han sound like this uni- like the unifier, right? That chi- like China is one because the Han unifies all these disparate peoples, and that's that's a really cute thing to say. Um, taken from that perspective, I think, and, and totally out of context, that you would probably praise the Han for doing this work. And, and, and to a certain extent, I agree with this, right? Um, but, you know, that, that might have even just been the original intention. I think if you look at some of the founding documents of the Chinese Communist Party, it suggests that, you know, they want to create unity among, you know, disparate ethnic groups. Um, but if you look at the reality of it today, you know, and, and we're also judging... Professor Fay on, you know, more than 30 years of, you know, 30 years later. So, you know, this, we have to take this with a grain of salt. But I think if you look at the reality today, uh, that the unity that he's talking about is totally a forced unity where we have like a minority culture that's suppressed um, and basically coerced into assimilation. It's not like, hey, you should join us because this is great. It's more like you sh- you have to join us because we say so. Uh, 
You know what I mean? Well, if they're going to pick a culture value, like if they're going to pick a culture to tie their history thousands of years to, you know, create this strong Chinese unit, uh, this strong strong Chinese state with like a really long history, Mm -hmm. then they're kind of forced to pick the Han as that unifying factor because that's their, that's the majority of the population. Right. Right. Of course. And there have been, and Han has been a name for so long. I mean, I feel like they're just kind of forced to do that. But I think when, when he says, um, they're, they have an ability to, um, exert unity i think that kind of means that they're like a continuous presence in china that everyone can can uh relate to or sympathize to hmm yeah i mean not it, finding it the d- right depends words on, depends on who you ask right because again this you know if we if, we, if you ask a, a weaker you know, they don't sympathize with Han in that respect. You know, they don't identify as Han. Uh, they they don't they see them as comp- competition competitors even. You know, and and you know, there's a lot of differences here. You know, I mean, like the the Uyghurs specifically are in these you know re-education camps as we spoke about in the last episode, and they're basically taught by force uh, how to be good communists and how to learn you know, Mandarin Chinese, right? And these are like core tenets of these re-educations that they are forced to go through. And and I think the language part doesn't, you know, doesn't fall on deaf ears for me, uh, to pun intended here. Uh, Professor Fay basically re- um, refers to what he calls the common Han language. And I think what he means, this is again back in the 80s, uh, but what he means there is like Mandarin or Cantonese or, or both, um, but I actually do think it's useful to, to think of this language difference as, uh, as a Han language, because it makes it easier to separate from other languages that, um, that the minorities speak. But from the perspective of that, like language there, only a couple of ethnic groups, uh, for example, the Hui, uh, they've, that they have adopted the Han language as their own language. And, and you could also say that pretty much every ethnic minority has their own language in China, but it gets kind of complicated, right? So there's this this group called the Manchus um, who are considered one of those 50, 55 ethnic minorities who, you know, you'd be, it'd be hard for you to find a Manchu who can actually speak Manchu, let alone who can read or write in Manchu. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the... Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Uh, so like that, that language is pretty much gone and they use the Han language, you know, in their day-to-day lives. 
but there are 10 ethnicities specifically that have their own straight up writing system. But even within them, only a few of them are widely used. So a few of them off the top of my head here are like Tibetan for sure, Mongolian, which by the way, exists within China and, and outside China, uh, Uyghur, of course, uh, and even Korean, Korea, there's, there's a good uh, Korean population and Korean speaking um, people in China as well. Um, but most of these ethnic minorities, um, you know, they've been in contact with the Han and, and ultimately the, if you come into contact with the Han over the course of these last 2000 years, you're probably going to learn the Han language because it was useful, right? Like, as you pointed out, they've been sticking around for thousands of years. So like they're consistent. They, they're the people you're going to trade with. They're the people you're going to do business with. They're sometimes the people that you're going to go to war with, you know, um, but I wonder. Is, yeah, go ahead. I wonder. I, I didn't want to interrupt you, but to go That's back right. to Manchu, I don't want to forget this. Yeah, Manchu. Manchus. Yeah. So when the Japanese invaded China in the mm-hmm. 1930s, they set up a state. They, they invaded North China first, and they mm-hmm. carved out a state as part of Japan, mm-hmm. and they called it Manchuko. Right. And that's where the Manchu, like the original origin of the Manchus, were. Mm-hmm. Japanese were doing a lot of fucked up shit yeah they really did the chinese people Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of i wonder what was i don't know this i'm I'm just asking like an open question i wonder what was the impact on um the manchu culture the the manchu cultures from that was there like any type of uh mass migration out forced assimilation like maybe that i mean that was a long time ago well not really that long but it was it was a decent amount of time ago and that might have caused or at least further the demise of the use of the Manchu language in daily life. That that definitely could definitely did not help, in my opinion. I'm not well, a scholar during on war, this particular. During, during the Second Sino-Japanese War, during World War II, or prior to them bombing Pearl Harbor, there was a mass migration of mm-hmm. Chinese people from the East Coast into the Western land, like. Probably one of the largest human migrations ever to take oh, yeah. place, mm-hmm. just because the Japanese were ravaging cities, they were mm-hmm. destroying cities. They were. I, I did a like a lot of work on um, the rape of Nanking. Right. Yeah. That was, and that was man, terrible. There's enough. There's enough there, there's evidence another. to really su- suggest that the Japanese were engaging in. Uh, they were incentivizing the killing of civilians among individual soldiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a newspaper article. There's newspaper articles with guys with scores like this guy killed fifty, like 130 people with a sword. Like right. just really disgusting, weird, bizarre things. Yeah, for sure. But I'm yeah, I mean, I, I can't, I can't imagine that 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 you know to to kind of wrap up on the Manchus. Like, I can't imagine that the Japanese invasion there that it didn't help the Manchu language, <laughs> you know. Um, and and to kind of wrap up this this bit on language, you know, I think there's there's not a ton of research on this specific issue, but um, the Han language is, has gradually become the common language in all of China, right? Even though there are so many different types of languages that are used there's there's one language the han language or i guess two languages if you want to count mandarin and cantonese that are pervasive throughout you know the the chinese mainland here's here's one here's the communist party line here again uh 
a quote from uh, Professor Fay. After liberation, the policy of the people's government was to give the right to each minority to use their own spoken and written languages, which was inscribed in the Constitution. So, <laughs> again, we're looking at this 30 years on, <laughs> but while it might have been inscribed in the Constitution, you know, the right for each minority to use their own language, uh, we see today the Chinese Communist Party using re-education camps to force Uyghurs to learn Han Chinese. Like, stop using Han, stop using Uyghur. You must use Han Chinese instead. So it's just, it's just, it's all ironic. You know, it's sad and it's ironic. And, and, you know, it's, it's not happening 3,000 years ago. It's happening now, you know. For, for all of this, I just wonder out loud, and this could honestly be its own show. I wonder to what extent, you know, Emperor Qin Shi Huang. Uh, his accomplishments in unifying the Chinese language and the writing system. I wonder how much of that is being used as a template today uh, in the Chinese Communist Party to to basically force assimilate or you can say erase ethnic minority culture, um, and specifically language. That's just kind of an open question. Well, I think I said this in the last episode. What's taking place in China is China's going through the nation state building process but they're mm -hmm. doing it with a blunt hammer <laughs> yeah in front of the world right so on tiktok it looks <laughs> yeah on on tiktok it's so it's disturbing to look outside in when you're like oh yeah there's a um there's a there's a camp with barbed wire surrounding it and that's where they're being re-educated yeah very very weird stuff very weird um, now, genocide, I don't think there's, they're not mass killing people. That's mm. usually what a genocide, genocide is classified as. I guess so. <laughs> when you say the word genocide, you think of like taking a bunch of people into the middle of the desert and leaving them and then letting them die. Like the right. Armenian, like the Armenian genocide was right. largely like, right. they or, took or a bunch like of people the to the Rwandan middle of the desert and left them there. Or like the Rwandan genocide where, you know, a group of, what was it, who, 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 Houthis, you know, came to kill all the Tutsis with, you know, machetes. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was a genocide. I think, I think, you know, if, if we're arguing semantics, you, you might say be culture right. genocide. Yeah, culture genocide, sure. Culture genocide is or for sure. If, if, if what we've learned about forced sterilizations is true, I would say that this is a proxy genocide in the sense that while we're not killing you today, we're making sure that you don't have children. We're not trying to kill you. We're trying to destroy your culture. Right. We're trying to make sure that you don't have, you don't, your culture doesn't continue, which is kind of itself a bit of a genocide. I don't want to get bogged down on this. We had a whole fucking episode on that. So if, you, if you're if interested in that, go listen to the last one. It makes perfect sense, though, knowing that, knowing what like the Chinese state system is and how would you expect them to confront um a religion they see as foreign and a minority that they see has a perplexity to um, react violently when provoked. I mean, well, it, it, understanding how, how, you know, the Han culture generally, you know, integrates other ethnic minorities is pretty hard because there's a lot of different iterations of it over the last few thousand years. But 
um, you know, a lot of it are some, you know, sometimes minorities integrate for societal reasons, right? Like it's just, they like the Han, right? So they just join. Sometimes it's economic, right? Actually, most of the time I'd argue it's economic, right? Um, the Han did agriculture really fucking well, right? So we want to live in a prosperous land. Sure. Yeah, we'll be Han. That sounds good. Uh, a lot of the time, though, it is political, right? Um, and and I think if you look at all the dynasties, all of them have, and even local governments, not just like, you know, you know federal government style dynasties, even though like local governments had a playbook for how to deal with inter-ethnic relations, right? Uh, they, 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 there were some rulers who, you know, who were from ethnic minorities that, that were ethnic minorities themselves, like, like Sean Bay uh, of the Northern Way, uh, who, who basically, they, they used reward systems or sometimes like administrative things to make their people assimilate with the Han. So they'd be like, hey, you know, this is better for you if you, you know, start speaking Han and acting like a Han and, you know, adopting Han culture because look at all this money we're making, right? Like they literally used like, you know, administrative means and sometimes rewards. Like here, if you speak Han, we'll give you land, you know? Um, but there were some rulers, uh, and I think the majority of the rulers who were who came from minority origins, um, they ended up trying to suppress the Han, right? They wanted to maintain their own ethnic culture. Uh, the majority of them were largely unsuccessful and they ended up assimilating anyway, which is clear because, you know, the Han is basically the, the, the majority minority group here. Um, here's another one of those party line quotes. Um, uh, indeed, a few decades ago, uh, this is pre- um, pre-communist party, the Republic of China forced uh, the Miao in Guizhou to modify their hairstyles. Oh, yes. <laughs> However, the effects of this kind of direct political intervention are not durable because this type of political institutional discrimination and oppression will incite strong resistance of the people and greater ethnic consciousness, creating more distance within the nation. So again, where is this quote from? This is from uh, Professor Fay. He wrote oh. this. He wrote this about the Miao people in Guizhou and he was he was basically dissing the Republic of China, right? And he was saying, well like in the Republic of China, they forced these Miao people to change their hairstyle and that's bad because that's oppression and it causes like, you know, uh, 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 resistance. And again, we're looking at this 30 years on and I'm like just kind of lolling on the side because it didn't age well. <laughs> like the, the Uyghur camps were literally trying to, I don't want to make this all about the Uyghurs, but it's just like comparing and contrasting here. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're making people cut their beards off, you know, <laughs> like they're, they're making them change and you know, not wear a hijab, things like that. You know, it's just, it's funny because he is definitely toting the the communist party line here and this is the official communist party like like theory and ideology and it's like is just he, totally opposite of what they're doing was he referring to like china as a state prior to the cpp or is yes. he talking about yes okay, okay. yes because taiwan's also called the republic of china right that that part gets a little confusing so he's talking about uh he's writing from the context of the ccp right he is oh. in the Communist Party, and he's dissing the prior 
government, which was the Republic of China, when they yeah. forced the people of the, the Miao people in Guizhou to change their hairstyle. Right. And he's saying that that was bad because that's, you know, he's like, that's not the right thing to do. That's not the communist thing to do. You know? Um, yeah. It's just, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's ironic. It's, it it's is like, very ironic. You know? Hey, force assimilation is a bitch. You start <laughs> doing things that you didn't expect yourself to do. Right. right. And uh, I'm making a lot of these comparisons to like forced assimilation. But honestly, if I'm being fair, especially over the last 3,000 years, not all of it was forced, right? Like like a lot of it was people assimilating willingly. Yeah, of course. You know, a lot of it. People are going to assimilate to cultures that will benefit them. Yeah, totally. I mean, look look at this if country. It, people come to this country if, all the time to, to find a better life, and then they assimilate to our culture, right? Yeah, people assimilate. People come to this country all the time, and... You know, they won't speak a word of English and then their kids will be the most like basic ass fucking <laughs> lame ass American, American. privileged yeah. fucker ever. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, dad, I want to put on SpongeBob, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, and people will assimilate to whatever culture that will ultimately yeah. Um, provide them with the means to uh, just thrive and work and make money and and uh, and uh, do commerce with people. Totally, and I think all th th this makes sense to think about. Like, how is it that all of these ethnic minorities from the last two thousand years decided you know, to to so effectively absorb into the Han culture? And and I think you're you're kind of hitting the, the the nail on the head here. You know, you can argue that these ethnic minorities over the last thousand, couple thousand years saw the Han people as this like consistent growing force, right? And that they would either want to directly get in on the action or, you know, they would indirectly assimilate through like mixing, right? Like sometimes this would be the case where, you know, I might be a staunch, you know, fucking Hui, but my son married a, you know, a Han girl and, you know, their kids ended up taking on the Han culture. And I might still be Hui, but, you know, that that intermixing and, and, and stuff like that, that, that definitely plays a big part in it as well. Um, one good reason though, to explain this like Han stability is definitely that the agriculture, the agricultural like economy that the Han created, this, this is total, this makes total sense. I think when you think about how pretty much all of the ethnic minorities, you know, in the regions that were hospitable, uh, for agriculture, they all became Han eventually. Right. Um, Whereas if you look at the plateaus and the mountains and the steppes and shit, you know, they're still kind of doing their own thing. Why? Uh, well, because you can't pl plant like a rice farm on the side of a mountain or in a desert, right? Duh. So the people that are in, in, in these places where farming is possible, they look at the Han people and they're thinking to themselves like, hey, we can farm here too. Can you show us how you got rich? Like, well, I want to do that, you know? Um, so that's kind of like the positive way of looking at how how consistently, you know, the Han cult, uh, the the minorities joined the Han culture, but the negative way to look at it would be to say that the Han dynasties, and not I'm not talking specifically about the Han dynasty, which is is a dynasty. I'm just talking about Han people and the dynasties that they created. The the Han dynasties they dominated 
places that they could set up an agricultural based economy. <laughs> you know, if if I can plant fucking crops in your land, I'm coming after you. Right? That was the edict of, you know, Qin Shi Hua. You know, of uh, Emperor Qin was like, if you if I can plant shit there, I, I'm taking your land and you're going to be Han and you're going to like it, god damn it. Um and so that sparks if if we look at the 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 global perspective right we see other ancient empires right like akkad is an example right as they grow their need their population grows right and their need for land and more food production increases with it and this causes war and tension and you know warring periods followed by you know peaceful periods followed by warring periods and the cycle goes on and on and on and if you look at the historical records specifically in china of the warring periods you know we have all of these things happening. And I think this is probably more true than the, like the fear of missing out argument that Professor Faye is trying to make, you know, where like, oh, people just wanted to join it because it was great. I probably think is, you know, probably had something to do with the way that empires expand. But I but, guess regardless, it was just tied up into the agriculture. Right. And the land that still that still lasts today, right? Um, but this had to have become a had to be a big problem going into the eighth to the nineteenth and twentieth century when they had to when they started um, going toe to toe with European industrial societies oh, yeah. that were just a lot more advanced by the time they really you know made that contact with them. Sure. Uh, suddenly, mm-hmm. nations with with a significantly smaller population could produce crops and more agriculture and products right. uh, without as much labor. Mm-hmm. And China was kind of forced into a, China was put in a position where they had to play catch up with the rest of the world. And in the 1800s, you see this, you see Japan and China. Japan is given the opportunity for industrialization right away, and they take it, and China doesn't. Mm-hmm. And Japan ends up dominating Asia for right. a good – doesn't last that long, probably about 40 years. But still. Not I mean, even 40 years. They started dominating Asia after the Russo-Japanese War. But even 40 years you know, in, in the industrial period is worth like – 400 yeah. years in the period prior yeah that's a good that's a good point because they japan ended up how much progress they make in such a short span of time you know well the progress that japan makes from the period where um commodore perry shows up in in japan with the black ships Gunboat diplomacy. Gunboat and says, hey, like, you're going to trade with us or we're going to... Because Japan was an isolationist uh, society at that right, time. Right, right, right. And they were like, hey, you're going to trade with us and you're going to fucking like it. And they're <laughs> like, gonna no, blow we're not. And like, we're going to... Bl-, and they started blowing up shit and they're like, all right, we'll do it. They're like, And then they <laughs> yeah. go back and like, hey, um, these guys have these fucking ships that could just level anything that we have on the coast. Right. We cannot go to war with them. We'll lose. Right. They're like, all right, well, why don't we just like trade with them and get their gun? Because they already had guns and stuff. They right. were they were trading with the Portuguese and then well, I mean, and the 
famously gunpowder gun was gunpowder was invented in the tang dynasty by china which is, yeah. is is crazy that you know it took off so much harder in, in in other places in the world it's very it's very strange that that happened that gunpowder was created in in china but it was um the evolution of like muskets and firearms and rifles really took place in Europe and mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. Really is when you see the major developments in guns, it's like through the civil war. Um, but yeah, it, it ended up screwing them when they had to engage with these, uh, with like England that really had no interest other than dividing them up and set hooking them up forcing them to tr- to uh purchase opium <laughs> yeah That's that was real up. yeah that was really up. kind of and they had a lot of they had a lot of screwed up leaders too who were really corrupt at that period of time who mm-hmm. were more salesmen than leaders well, who uh go figure that's kind of part of every... course for authoritarian you know societies so. yeah I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're coming, we're coming pretty long here. Uh, so I, I want to wrap with a few more, you know, thoughts on Chinese demographics now that we know a bunch, um, about it. So I think, I think I really like this essay. I think Professor Fate does a really awesome job of doing history. And I just, I'm barely scratching the surface here, you know, talking to you guys about this. Um, but I also think that you know, since it was written in the 80s, a lot of these numbers are outdated, and even some of the ideas are a little bit outdated. But the general gist of the distribution of population, you know, um, for the ethnic minorities uh, versus the Han, is pretty much the same. And and you know, he he goes at length to group all of these Han people together as a single ethnicity, and I think he's making the point that um, that this would 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 make them the single largest ethnicity in the world. Uh, and I kind of contest kind of contest a bit because. I contest this a bit because you know, this wouldn't be true for China, for India as an example, right? India has a, a roughly equal number of people, but more if I'm not mistaken, by a little bit, right? It's, it's in the billions, right? So we're, you know, who cares? It's close enough. Um, and and they and they they also have a pretty similar geographic boundary set, right? They have the Himalayas and you know the seas and the Indian Ocean, things like that, you know. Um, and they also have a ton of distinct ethnic groups but you wouldn't they don't the indians don't have like this convenient construct of being quote indian like i'm calling them indian because it's easy to say but they they don't have the same thing right like a hindu person identifies as hindu and gujarati people identify as gujarati and so on and so forth china has this national identity that is both and this is the crazy part it, it is both a constructed fiction like it's not real you know uh it's just this fiction that everyone believes but it's also a practical reality because of all the assimilation that happens and that has been happening over the last couple thousand years he also makes some questionable like claims about some ethnic minorities and and this one kind of got under my skin a bit uh specifically he was talking about these ethnic minorities who 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 maybe at one point might have been han but Today, they don't identify as Han. Um, and so, you know, he he brings up some, you know, fossil records and some like historical migratory patterns. Um, but he basically refers to them as an unidentified ethnicity instead of the ethnicity that they want to call themselves. 
Um, you know, I have a quote from it, but I really don't need, even need to read it. You know, the, the point is that they, they have these, these ethnicities that at one point might have been Han and now they don't consider themselves Han. And I think he's kind of, I might be setting up a false choice here, but as it relates to minorities who might have been descended from Han, but who no longer identify as it, like, which is it? You know, because uh, Faye makes the argument that in order to become an ethnicity, a community needs to recognize members outside of their community in order to distinguish themselves as an ethnicity. Right? So I think he writes, uh, it must be noted that in order for an ethnicity to be named, it must first exist as an ethnicity and does not become an ethnicity until it has been named. Right? So it's, it's this kind of like a chicken and the egg situation, right? In order to be an ethnicity, you need to all agree that you're an ethnicity. But in order for you to agree that you're an ethnicity, you need to know that some other ethnicity exists outside of your ethnicity first. You know, uh, it's it's nuts. And for these specific ethnic identification of these unidentified ethnicities, I see this as an attempt to to basically exercise this kind of cult-like unified national identity of China, right? Like for me, and this this hits this hits home for me, I think, because I'm an American. Uh, and for those who've been listening to the show for a while, you probably already know that I'm I'm half Puerto Rican and half Palestinian. And th- and that's what that's where my heritage comes from. Um, but your nationality. Right. Right. That's my nationality, right? Or or, or I don't know. Like I, I hate these labels because it's like unclear for me. If, if you were to ask me, right, if anywhere in the world I go, if people ask me, what am I, right, I identify as an American, right? That's what I identify as. That is my, that is the culture that I share, right? Uh, and that would be like me going up to, you know, a French person in France and they ask me, you know, uh, uh, what's your ethnicity? And I say, oh, I'm an American. And they tell me, no, you're not. You're either a Puerto Rican or a Palestinian. Or or worse, they said, oh, you must be other than. Okay, I know what you are. You know, it's like I'm what I am, what I identify as. And I happen to identify as an American, you know, um, and like, who the fuck are you to tell me what I identify as or not? Like, like, I think what's what's important here for me is that ethnicity is entirely a social construct. Something that, you know, and I'm borrowing from Faye here, it, quote, undergoes changes over the course of history. So even though in some cases we have these biological pretexts to ethnicity, those biological pretexts by themselves are not what make ethnicity, and they're certainly not what keep an ethnicity that way, right? Well, you know, a lot of uh, the ethno kind of uh, alt writers, they kind of harp on this subject like, oh, we need to make an ethno state. Yeah. The more you kind of read into like um, ethnicities and stuff, the more you find out that race matters less and less Yep. between people. Mm-hmm. And they're not necessarily talking about like, race ethnicity they're talking about more so like race like, like race DNA, theory, like genetics right, exactly right. like race theory mm-hmm. I, the more you i don't understand really how i i do understand that they come to those conclusions but i just think they're just wrong yes yeah, um <laughs> not like not even just on a moral level but just like, like on, on, on like a practical just, level on a, in a, in an intellectual yeah. level i think that a lot of they're, they're just the, the ideas are dumb um the 
ethnicities are, I think, are fleeting. Mm-hmm. Like they're they're totally. fleeting things. Right. Like they're you're never going to say stay the same, and they're always going to change continuously. Mm-hmm. Um, one day, this will be a different. I'm. I mean, it's hard to say now because there's so much like shit out there. There's so much like written English out in the world right now. It's hard to imagine there. It's hard to imagine in the future there being another language that like the dominant Earth culture speaks. But I guess it, it might be Chinese. It might be the Han language. <laughs> that would be amazing, right? Well, I mean, it, it that that seems like the practical way to go, right? Because you know, the reason why English today is the dominant, you know, global language is because it has the most economic backing to it. And in the next, what, five years, China's going to surpass us as, as the global leader in the economy. Does that mean that in the next five years, we're all going to be speaking Chinese? Hell no, right? Because that, it doesn't happen that fast. You know, like cultural changes don't have, don't shift overnight. But if it sustains that way, and, you know, the, the Chinese uh, government doesn't implode on itself, Right. Um, then, you know, the likelihood is that if they continue to be, you know, the, the economic powerhouse in the, in the world for, you know, a couple decades, then yeah, people are going to be, people are going to naturally assimilate to Chinese. They're going to assimilate to the Han, <laughs> you know? Um, and when aliens, when aliens come to earth, the big question is who's going to be, of what language are we, are we going to speak the to them? Diplomats going to speak to them. Math. We're not going to speak to them in, in language. Math is a universal language. Hey, math is just a social construct, man. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> math is a social construct. I want to. I want to. Um. I, I want to kind of end here. Uh. With with one thought. So we were talking about how you know uh, the economy of the Han Chinese people was agricultural based. And eventually, you know, because of the Industrial Revolution, they had to change that up. Uh, but, I mean, up until very recently, it's still, even today, you might argue that it's still very agriculturally dominant. But if you look at their future plans, right, and their China Road, you know, uh, One Belt Initiative, whatever the fuck it's called, the Land Bridge. <laughs> one Belt, One Road. Yeah, One Belt, One Road. Uh, if you look at that, what's interesting is, all of the places that historically the Han people over the last 2,000, 3,000 years ignored, the steppes, the mountains, you know, all those places, are now all the places that are rich in all of the things that a modern economy needs. Minerals, oil, natural gases, you know. Uh, and now they're very interested in those regions that they've yeah. that they used to ignore, you know. Um, so I find, I find that it's like super interesting. And, and now, you know, <laughs> I, I see this as mostly like, I see this conflict as mostly economically driven and not, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to put down Han people and say that, you know, they're all like Han supremacists and all this other nonsense. Like, I think this is mostly a, like an economic problem, right? So there's that. Well, you've. Well, I mean, China's very energy dependent on the Middle East. Oh, yeah. So they are scrambling for, they're very, very thirsty for energy. Mm-hmm. So finding uh, natural resources in a region 
where there's people who are not with it yet yep. or not down yet with like what we're doing here in the state. Not down with the Hanness. See, I think it's more so just, I don't think, so Mao, Mao, for example, Mao, the bastard that he was, he was, um, I, I think he rejected Han nationalism from things I've read. Mm-hmm. He was more focused on like, you know, the communist state and, and that ideology. Right. And he rejected like the, 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 um, the construct that the Han were this, um, the core of Chinese culture. Yeah, I mean that's, However, that's evidenced in there. And Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, I think overt, he he's kind of said similar things, but at the end of the day, it's like ninety percent of the population, and it's yeah. still, uh, it's still part of the state. If that's what ninety percent of your that's population the practical is, reality is right. Yeah, it's the practical reality of it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I know it's a weird, it's a weird, touchy topic, right? Yeah, that that is true. You know, because Mao you know, founded the Communist Party, and in their constitution, you know, it does talk. I read one quote there that talks about like that. You know, ethnic minorities should be able to have their own language. But also, there's some parts in there that I that I left out of this particular thing here that talks about how uh, ethnic minorities should get preferential treatment. Right, that they should even get a leg up on society, and 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 the reason why is because, um, you know, oh man, I wish I can find this super quickly, but uh, that that the communist party wants everyone to have a, a evil a equal playing field, and that they should all get this extra special treatment, even if it means, you know, not 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 equality but equity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you know these ethnic minorities who who don't who aren't quite as advanced should get extra extra money or extra you know education things like that, um, and it's funny because that's that's in their founding documents, and and they are definitely against a classist society, right? They communism as a as a political theory is is opposed to the idea of a Han like a. Um, Han supremacist as a, as a racial as a racial supremacy group exactly or like a a a, a a a racial class right. really right you know they don't they don't believe in classes that's not a th- that's not uh, a thing te- all technically. that all that there is is the state but un- you know like you pointed out ninety percent of their state is Han <laughs> you know so so the state well, is Han <laughs> it's certainly a very touchy subject yeah. and yeah. I'm glad we decided to speak about ethnicity and culture uh, using China as a template because I feel like that's less sensitive than talking about other stuff, <laughs> like yeah. using another template. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but man, I learned a lot from this conversation. Oh, it, is, but... it is really interesting. I'm also confused as well, but I think that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Probably. I have so many questions in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, so it it was, I think this was productive. I think... I hope all you all have the same feeling as being like, oh, I learned a lot about China today, but also feeling very confused at the same time. <laughs> Be like, oh, I have some questions about all this stuff. <laughs> That's certainly how I feel. But uh, no, this was great. I think that this was incredibly informative for me at the very least, man. I 
I definitely learned a lot from from doing this show today. Um, are we going to end this right here? Yeah, let's let's do it. All right. Well, thanks guys for joining us for another episode of Bro History. We always really appreciate it when you join us for an hour and a half this uh, during the week. Uh, we we just appreciate your time that you give us and, and your attention. So uh, thanks again. Um, if you want to support us, there are two ways to do that. Number one, you rate and review the podcast if you have an Apple device. So just click on the five-star thingy, write a review. We've been getting a lot of reviews lately, so we really do appreciate it. Continue writing the reviews. It helps us grow. We see significant correlation between the reviews that we get and the ratings that we get and then the number of downloads. So it really helps the show grow. So just keep on doing that. And um, if you want to get like further, more episodes, so we do after shows that we do like a 30 minute to 15 minute kind of uh, shooting the shit recap, um, talking about maybe more um, current event topics. It's really talking about extending the show a little bit longer. Um, so we release that on our Patreon. So um, you can sub to our Patreon for just. A do- as low as a dollar a month uh, you also get access to our slack account the slack account is uh where we it's like a centralized hub where we all communicate so a lot of our listeners will will we'll talk to each other we have listeners from all over the world who are in there um we have some really fun conversations going on so you can join us on slack if you go to bro history dash uh slash uh Bro, excuse me, Patreon slash Bro History. <laughs> it's late. We do these shows very late on weekdays uh, because we love you guys so much. Um, all right, that's all. Everything I had to say. Yep. Happy New Year, everybody. Ha- happy, Ch- happy Chinese New Year. Peace. Peace. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.